Thanks for joining us this morning. I'm Sharon Butler, um, a painter, publisher of the art blogazine Two Coats of Paint. And this is a Two Coats of Paint conversation. This past week, Two Coats published a couple of pieces, one on Jobby Picos at Love of Gallery in the Lower East Side, and then another uh, art and film column on the old 1990s film High Art. If you haven't seen it, it's on the Criterion Criterion Collection, and it stars Ali Sheedy as a Nan Golden-like photographer. And then also we updated the gallery guide, so go have a look at that. But remember, before you go to any of the galleries, you might want to call first. And um, they are checking vaccine cards, and you do need to wear a mask. All right. Today, I'm joined by Mark Tribe. Mark is not only my neighbor, but he's a visionary artist. And um, and by that, I mean the work he's produced over his long and interesting career is marked by astounding imagination and foresight and a willingness to explore new ideas and unusual media before anybody else even considered that they might be useful in making art. And Mark's idea of what art has always what art is has always been expansive and in the 1990s he was deeply engaged in net art and founded rhizome which is a, a publication but it's an arts advocacy organization a social system and you know art database and all kinds of things and i'm sure it's changed quite a bit since the new museum took over so they right now it over but they did partner i was going to say it's a it's a, pro- a, a project in residence right yeah that's right Okay. Yeah. Do correct me if I get any of this wrong because. Uh, it's I, just I, important because Rhizome is still autonomous. Yes. Uh, um, and sort I of do under ha- the umbrella and or the, or the protective wing, the benevolent <laughs> shelter of the new museum. Well, I do want to talk about uh, the project. Um, but also, I, I just want to say that he's also produced and recorded political speeches embedded with upstate militia. I don't know if embedded is the right term there, but. Um, worked with close enough yeah. and documented and most recently he's taken to making landscape pictures currently his work is on view at minus space in dumbo and the show comprises a, a series of large-scale pigment prints made using digital software 24-hour video create uh, recorded in the wilderness in oregon right not washington it's oregon and That's right an actual handmade landscape painting. The work reflects his interest in how our planet is evolving. So, hi, Mark. Welcome to the Thanks. Two Coats of Paint It's um, nice to be here. And here. I'm just looking, looking at who's in the room with us, and um, I'm happy to see some friends and a bunch of people who I haven't gotten to know yet. So, welcome, everybody. Great. Well, you know, before we start talking about the work on View at Minuspace, I do want to talk a little bit about your evolving interest in social and political issues and Rhizome and how all of that, how, how your work came to be, sort of the evolution of your, your, your interests over time. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think I have for quite a while thought about you know, where we are. Uh, <laughs> Homo sapiens, human civilization, uh, where we are in history. Like kind of taking a step back and, and, and taking a long view. I think this began really when I first graduated from college and, and moved out to San Francisco. So somehow, you know, um, transplanting myself to the West Coast, um, I, I got my first glimpse that the world was on the brink of some pretty big changes. This was 1990. Um, that would be partly catalyzed by technology, and so I started to learn about that stuff. And and but then I went to grad school, and um, and it was in grad school towards the end that 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 interest in what we then called new media art, um, and also in this thing that that not a lot of people really knew about called the internet, which is like say 1993. I started to really think this is going to be a big deal. You know, I, I, I set out to read a whole bunch of what's known as cyberpunk, a genre of science fiction. Best known uh, cyberpunk author was uh, William Gibson, who wrote this book called Neuromancer, but also Neil Stevenson, who wrote Snow Crash and, and a bunch of others. And I was reading Wired Magazine, which had just started publishing, and a bunch of other stuff. And I just thought, you know, this this really is, you know, this, I, the, the idea that everyone in the world could connect with 
anyone else at any time form communities that were not limited so much by geography more by say shared interest or cause and you know that artists that we could share our work and 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 develop critical dialogue with curators and, and writers and others without the intermediation without the gatekeeping as much as it had been of galleries and you know old school magazines like art form that really inspired me and you know art was just one of many worlds it was disrupted by this new technology but i kind of saw it coming um i mean it, it might have happened differently but I, I was early on that snowball right and the thing is, is you were very early on the idea of using the web as a place for art you know as a place um to make art and see art but also, you know, sort of this conceptual notion of what art might be. You yeah, know, where well, I think a lot of people saw, recognized that the, you know, the web was going to be this great way to, you know, share conversation and everything. You had, you actually went even further. There were quite a few of us, of course. You know, by 1996, when I started Rhizome, 98, you know, there were hundreds, thousands of artists, maybe hundreds anyway, around the world who were starting to make art using the internet and, and, and the web as a, if not as a medium, then as a sort of central um, space for their practice. You know, I was, I studied with Alan Capro, uh, among others at UC San Diego for grad school. And, you know, uh, Capro, he's best known for happenings. He has a, there's a book of his collected writings called um, The Art of Everyday Life. And I was, you know, was interested in, in, in happenings in site specific and situation specific art and I really just thought okay this is a new kind of public space emerging where artists can do stuff can can stage interventions so I wasn't interested in the internet as a place to put you know photographs of your paintings but I was interested in the internet as a space for art making and for artists to form community I wasn't alone but I was kind of on the early side I, my first net art project was called Traces of a Constructed City went online in, in maybe March of 96 no 95 I'm sorry uh, about a year before it started Rhizome and uh, there was there were maybe a couple dozen works of net art the term wasn't even in use at that point um, uh, that early and then um, you know fortunately you know having started Rhizome it, it did kind of snowball and then Rhizome was just uh, there were a lot of other organizations that were also focused on net art and new media art and Rhizome was just a survivor Right, right. And so, um, how did you, how did you decide to leave Rhizome? When I first, I mean, I'm sort of interested in that because you moved from that onto other, other projects. Yeah, when I when I first started it, I thought, okay, you know, somebody's got to do this. It might as well be me. I was pretty, I felt pretty alienated by the commercial gallery art world at that time. You know, I'd just moved to Berlin. And at, in Berlin at the time, they would have what they called a Rundgang, which means basically like you go around to the to the different galleries. So a lot of galleries in in Mitte, uh, which is a neighborhood where a lot of the cool galleries were, would have openings on the same night, and people would go around. And I just, you know, I had just landed as an American. I spoke some German, but I just was like, you know, I felt like that world was a little frosty. Um, I didn't feel like. <laughs> the warm embrace as a newcomer, as an outsider. And, but it was more a sense of like, you know, I just want, I would like to be part of an art world that is curious about what young emerging artists are doing that may not be connected to the market. You know, the, I don't remember, I don't know how many people on the call were, were in college or grad school in the 90s, but there was still a very anti commercial orientation, even more so than there is now, I think, in in a lot of MFA programs. Um, it was sort of like commercial gallery. Why would you be interested in showing there? I just don't, you know, why? Right. It's like, right. you know, capitalism is the problem. Um, we didn't know what the solution was. <laughs> but, um, and so, you know, I had this dream of a kind of parallel art world. And um, and I knew a lot of other, emerge, you know, young artists from lots of different backgrounds and disciplines, and not just the visual arts, also dance, you know, who were interested in the stuff. And I have this vivid memory of um, hopping into a van 
with this Dutch artist I just recently met. I met him at like 4 a.m. on the streets. We, we could, together we found this amazing industrial cart and we hauled it back to his studio and me and I became friends. And like two weeks later, I'm in the back of his van hurtling down the highway from Berlin to uh, Austria to go to this big new media conference called Ars Electronica. And I just felt like, you know, that weekend I met this huge portion of the world of people who were interested in that. But I was also like, there's got to be, for every one person that's here, and there's maybe a thousand, um, there's got to be 10 more who didn't have the time or the money to get here, but who mm-hmm. are interested in this stuff. The internet is the perfect thing to, to, to help us connect. And so right. it started out first as an email list, and then... I was like, but we're going to start archiving the conversation, like the good stuff, uh, in a database, and then people can search the database via the web. Nobody had really done that before. And, uh, you know, off it went. But now, fast forward, 2017, you started making paintings of landscapes. Let's fast forward to, yeah, let's fast forward to, um, Okay, sure. So, How about uh, 2013? Was, Do you want to well, fast so forward to 2013? 2012 is when I started making landscape pictures. Uh-huh. And, um, but 20, actually, when I started making the paintings is a good place to start because I had started making landscape pictures, but that really grew out of other stuff, which is not tangential, but like it basically somehow I got to landscape from the Port Huron project, which you mentioned, which is reenactments of protest speeches. So that is maybe a little bit connected to the theme of taking a step back and looking at where we are in history, because mm-hmm. it was basically we were around the 40th anniversary of, you know, the March on Washington and Woodstock and, you know, all those, you know, the, the, you know, the, the as a civil rights movement, you know, sort of, you know, blew up in a big way and, the, and sort of merged with the anti-war movement and, you know, all these other liberation movements that became known as the New Left. And I was really interested in why, 40 years later, when we were a few years into the, this horrible war in Iraq that, you know, all my students at Brown opposed, there was just not, none of the kind of uprising and, and protest that we saw mm-hmm. um, 40 years earlier. What had changed? You know, what had changed? Was it because there was no longer any kind of outside to capitalism after the fall of the Soviet Union? Was it because of the rise of the, the Internet and YouTube and you know, the sort of, uh, or was it a kind of like a, a deeper disillusionment, like a sense of futility, like protest just doesn't work, dude. You know, that's my, mm-hmm. my students were into public service more than, and direct action than protest. Um, and so that's what that project was about, was just sort of trying to reflect through through reenacting on how things had had not changed. You know, French mm-hmm. express, expression, plus ça change, more mm-hmm. things change, you know, dot, dot, dot the more things change the same, the more things stay the same. That's sort of mm-hmm. what I was thinking there. That rolled forward into a project where I was filming right-wing militia training exercises out in the woods. And it was when I was out in the woods with a camera filming you know, these guys in camouflage with their AR-15s and AK-47s firing off, you know, Hundred thousands of rounds, like you know, into the trees, <laughs> and uh, preparing for Armageddon. You know, I was like, there's something really interesting about why they're doing it here, and it wasn't just practical. You know, there was a symbolic role that wilderness played, I think, for them because it gave him a kind of tabula rasa, blank slate, on which to maybe imagine rewriting the laws of civil society. On, yeah, you know, for them. You know, some militia groups are more white supremacist. This group was more libertarian mm-hmm. um, and thought of themselves actually as being not racist, if not anti-racist, which is interesting. They were in New York, not, you know, not Texas. But um, but anyway, like, what is it about landscape? So I went back to the militia training ground. This is 2012. After they had left, like, I made a separate trip back when they weren't around with a camera and just set it up on a tripod and started rolling as if it was a photograph but capturing real time and I would just record for basically the amount of time that I could record on a single card mm-hmm. like memory card in the camera and I did I made a, about a half a dozen of those on, like in one day and then um, 
Is it okay if I just keep rambling like this, Jerry? Oh, yeah. No, this is okay. great. So this I'm very curious because I was reading about th- that project, and we've never discussed it. And I'm, I think it's very interesting that that led it, feeds into the whole idea of the landscape painting. So go, go on. Okay. So, so, so I, it was really hard to find militia groups that would allow me in, right, that would even respond. So many of them posted on these kind of obscure forums, like kind of bulletin boards. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and um, but I also noticed a lot of them would would record their training exercises and post them on YouTube. So I would like via YouTube try to contact the people who had posted them, and most of the time they didn't respond. Um, but you know, I started going down this YouTube rabbit hole of militia training videos because that's what I was interested in doing was filming them myself, filming militia training videos, and then. For the project, the idea was to record them and then rec- then collaborate with choreographers to translate them into dance and then present the dance in different ways, you know, mm-hmm. in video installation and also like in the gallery to sort of shed a kind of to, to sort of reframe and recontextualize the militia performance so that people could, you know, think about it critically without being just sort of knee jerk. They're crazy. Right. Um, but anyway, um, I'm down this YouTube rabbit hole. And YouTube, of course, you know, in addition to showing me video, more, like, you know, recommending more videos of militia training, was also showing me videos that people make when they play first person shooter games. They, they record their gameplay. Mm-hmm. There's this whole world on YouTube and also on all these online forums of people sharing video game play videos their exploits you know like how they get through different levels or like you know just how cool it is like a new game a new game game comes out and lots of people record tons of video and and i just noticed these incredible similarities between the militia training landscapes where they train and what they look like in the landscapes in these first person shooter video games and mm-hmm. i was like wow there's this really interesting blurring going on between the real world "Quote unquote real world" and the right. and this vir- these virtual worlds of, of video games, and they seem to me to be connected by similar kind of um, fantasies, like wilderness somehow becomes this this projection screen, this this blank slate on which we could imagine or project our fantasies. Hmm, that's interesting. Reminded me right. a little bit too of the, you know the idea of of wilderness and nature and the the sort of the the ape, empty North American continent that was central to the idea of manifest destiny right in you know in the especially in the 19th century you know I'd say it's like oh here's this continent that we can go out and make good use of but also sort of commune with the divine mm-hmm. uh, with the western god you know irrespective of the indigenous people these sort of noble savages that we just sort of like you know well we that we exterminated right. um, horribly. Um, so, so all that was interesting, and I started. What I did was I, I thought, okay, I'm gonna. I, I started really investigating the landscapes of the video games, and ended up making a series of quote unquote photographs by figuring out how to make really high quality, really high resolution screen captures from first-person shooter games, found the games with the most naturalistic landscapes. Actually, you know, as an assistant, I found a guy who was a, you know, a a recent graduate from a photography program who was also a first-person shooter game expert. Like, he he was, like, assistant for various games and stuff, and he helped me build a really high-powered gaming machine and figure out how to sort of hack the games to get rid of the other players so I could just make these, you know, these, these landscapes didn't have any Soldiers or tanks or other things in them, and I showed them. I showed them first at Momenta Art, the gallery, and in, in, then it was in um, Bushwick, mm-hmm. um, and the, they were in the front room, framed in white frames. There's one of them in the gallery now at Minus Space, as a kind of you know throwback to that that first moment. And then in the back, I had the rec- a recording that I had shot in the militia training ground, sort of drawing this connection between the two worlds of online and offline. So that was sort of how I first got into um, into landscape but then so then so you were making these um, 
Well, you went from hacking things that already existed into making your own using the software? Right. That, yeah, so the big, the sort of the feature with the, the, the large photographs that are in the main space at, at Minus Space um, came out of a, a conversation I had with Philip Brookman, who was the curator of the Corcoran Gallery in D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, a lot of times exhibitions and opportunities don't arise in the ideal way. They come right. because somebody's a friend of a friend or whatever. But this was one of those situations that you really dream about where this was a curator who did his research and I think you know he had just kind of been following my work for a while and he thought, hmm, you know, his, his background was in photography and he was just kind of, you know, interested. So he invited me down to meet with him and we walked through the galleries. We looked at, you know, the landscape paintings and the photography that, that the Corcoran had from the 19th century. And he said, would you like to do a project? Um, and the thought process I went through, you know, having been curious about Manifest Destiny and learned a lot about the history of landscape painting, particularly in America, and how one of the, the, the sort of critical frameworks that art historians have used to understand the paint, 19th century American landscape paintings by Asher B. Durand and William Ken, uh, Frederick Kensett, uh, mm-hmm. George Innes, uh, Church, and others, Bierstadt, is in relation to this idea of Manifest Destiny, which is, you know, from you know, from our perspective, somewhere between problematic and just flat out evil. Um, Did you want to just describe briefly yeah. to, to the audience what Manifest Destiny is? Right. Just so in case just, we, we might have people who aren't from this country. Right. So Manifest Destiny is this, this phrase that almost every American high school student is taught when they take their American history class, like in 10th grade or 11th grade, I guess. Um, and it's this idea that first came... It was. It first appeared in in the writing of a journalist whose name escapes me, but it was used kind of critically. He was like, "These people think that it's their manifest destiny, like God gave them this continent to to conquer and to expand into and to colonize." Um, but it was then sort of taken up, and 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 people sort of started to rally behind it. Actually, um, and so you know, from going uh, from like so, the U.S. signed all these treaties with with um, uh, Native American tribes and nations that they would then basically violate, and it you know it ends in um, Wounded Knee and the Trail of Tears and and just this sort of like um, steamrolling westward uh, from the East Coast and then eastward from the West Coast to to then you know when the, the railway meets in the middle and you know it seems like. You know, coast to coast and north to south, this whole continent belongs to the United States of America. That's the idea. Right. That's the ideology under it, underwriting that kind of expansion. Um, and it's a, it's a complicated idea that has to do a little bit with American exceptionalism, with uh, Christian theology, um, that, you know, that there's only one true God, uh, long tradition, you know, coming from Europe of dehumanizing non-Europeans. Um, and considering indigenous people as uncivilized savages. So, um, you know, horrible stuff. Um, yeah, and they just staked out claims out west and gave the land to people as if it yes. were theirs to give. In lots of different ways, too. Um, yeah, so in like forming the national park system, too. Uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt also created this idea of parks as pristine places and what they would do then is take the people whose land that was and say you can't go there you can't live there you can't travel through there you can't fish and hunt there or gather there um so you know it's yeah it's a horrible history and i was you know reflexively critical of it and then as i learned more and more about it came to understand these ties between survey photography by photographers like carlton Watkins, who traveled Mm -hmm. out west um, and took pictures of the American West and painters like Bierstadt and others, sort of the ways in which whatever the expressed political beliefs of those artists was, they, they seem, in retrospect at least, to us 
and served, I think, in the eyes of many as um, as agents of manifest destiny, as mm-hmm. as symptoms of it. So, so I that led me to think, well, if manifest destiny was to say the survey photographs of Carlton Watkins, and if you, if those don't come to mind, you just picture. Um, you know, large prints made on a one of those ancient like eight by ten view cameras with a glass plate of say like an expansive Rocky Mountain landscape shot from the ridge. That Always majestic scenes. Pretty much. You yeah. know, often. Yeah, and often often empty of, of human habitation. Although Watkins Watkins was an interesting interesting person and a really ambitious and important photographer and I'm not trying to throw him under the bus, but um, you know, if 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 we could understand Carlton Watkins and, and Bierstadt paintings as symptoms of manifest destiny, what's the contemporary like 2014 equivalent or analog of manifest destiny? And I thought, well, it's obviously the you know the, the sort of ideology of uh, American military supremacy the United States it, after the Cold War as the, the world's only superpower that is basically using its high tech military force to crush a war on terror to make sure that oil flows freely from the Middle East to make sure that, that trade flows quote unquote freely to protect America's interests and the interests of global multinational capitalism <laughs> To speak a little bit like a like a post Marxist, um, so that's the ideology. And what's the what's then the the symptom of that ideological disease? Well, I thought it's kind of the drone's eye view. It's this. Well, that's what I was going to say. It was a time when sky. Yep, yep, yep. You know, it's and it's not even necessarily a lens based view, right? Because drones do have lenses um, that create. Uh, you know, video and, and photographic still images using the visible spectrum. They also have infrared cameras, but then they also capture tons of data with all kinds of sensors, radar and, um, and, and GIS, graphic, geographic information systems, and all that is sort of fused together. Uh, the pilot, you know, sits in a in a really you know a high tech cockpit, usually in like a <laughs> a trailer somewhere in Nevada or upstate New York. You know, flying these things via a network, you know, half a world away, mm-hmm. and they're getting, you know, it's just, it, the pilot's really a team of people. Um, they're constantly analyzing information that's coming in from all these sources, synthesizing it, and trying to determine, okay, you know, is this the target we're looking for? And you know, are there children around? And you know, do we fire this Hellfire missile at this car? What's going to happen? You know, can we afford not to do it? Can we afford it? I mean, it's just, it's ho- the horrible calculus it causes. You know, there's, um, you know, a lot of interesting research on how drone pilots actually get PTSD from their experience because they're so mm-hmm. immersed in the virtual reality via the drone system. So what I started to do is make a series of data images that look a lot like drone images. They look a lot like Google Maps, but they're made using some software that I found that was basically meant to be used to make, I think, flight simulators. And um, so, you know, it, a lot of satellite photographs and drone photographs, if you see them, have jagged edges because of the way they composite multiple pictures together, mm-hmm. right? So they're sort of, you know, put together um, by software um, to take multiple pictures from different angles and put them together into one. Kind of like, say, David Hockney photographs sometimes work. Right, right. Right, taking a picture of a subject from lots of different angles and then, pay, you know, he does it the low-tech way. So I did that in a similar way. Ended up with these interesting, very high-resolution Emulate uh, images that are sort of simulations of a drone's eye view of the American West, of Mendocino County, California, and Coconino County, Arizona, and decided to print them out on dye bond, which is a kind of aluminum composite panel, and and cut them out so that they have those kind of dynamic shaped edges that you might see in a in a composited drone or satellite photograph. Um, also, because they reminded me of these shaped canvas pieces by Kenneth Noland and, and Frank Stella and Ellsworth Kelly and others that 
you know, the Corcoran also had in their collection. But mm-hmm. I never had a yeah, I never had an excuse to be that kind of formalist. So, um, so that's what's in the in the main gallery uh, are these big aerial landscape images that look very much like satellite pictures, but in fact are are not. Well, they're very interesting because first of all, they they look great in the gallery. Let me just say, but um, you know they they do have this presence of you know reality that you are looking at some sort of drone imagery of something and then when it becomes clear as you get closer that they're just digital images or i shouldn't say just they, they're digital images they're in fact digital images right but then they're they're really not just digital prints of real places but they're actually completely digitally imagined and fabricated by software which is the other interesting thing so the video game pictures that I made were actually made by artists who work for video game designers who use game world authoring software to kind of craft landscapes. The landscapes in those large prints from the series I did for the Corcoran, the, the data is all, it's just it's topographic data, mm-hmm. which is more or less accurate to what's in the world. You know, if you see a mountain in one of my pictures, there is in fact a mountain there that oh. you know at that location. They're real places, uh-huh. right? But then the software uses all kinds of complicated what they call fractal algorithms to decide what is probably what ought to be there. So depending on the altitude and the latitude and the longitude, it might be forest or grassland or desert or sea, right? Mm-hmm. Or ocean. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's one of those one of my pictures is called Tehama. In the foreground are these gorgeous kind of dark, look like granite cliffs. And at the bases of the cliffs, there's little bits of snow. And it's the uncanny thing is that no human decided to put snow there. It's extremely plausible, right? Well, but, it's just so fascinating that this is these are completely AI-derived. Yeah. It's not quite AI, but it's similar. Yeah. It's really similar. Huh. It is. I mean, it's 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 as if it were an artificial intelligence. That's a term that's used to mean a certain kind of like usually machine learning system. Uh-huh. This is a little different, but yeah, it's a kind of synthetic intelligence. A kind of, I guess it is like generically speaking, like right. a computer science scientists wouldn't call it AI, but right. I guess but for, a, for us, but a we painter call it might call it AI. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so all right, so you've got these, and then you've got the twenty-four hour. Um, Beautiful. Right. So maybe I can video maybe take recording. the leap into landscape painting and and and, and the twenty four hour recording. Yes. Yeah. That's really where that's where I've been now for the last you know since twenty fifteen is when I started working on these. Um, so after doing that thing with the, the oh Mark got a call. Did you guys hear that? Phone ringing and all that? No. Okay, good. We, we, we saw the icon, but we didn't hear the conversation. My phone just right. rang. Sorry. So, That's um, okay. So I, I, I was like, well, these first two projects I did, the one with the video games, which is called Rare Earth, and the one with the drones I view simulations, was called Plan Air. Um, they were both, I would call them critical landscape practice, like... You know, I was trying to criticize other people's landscape ideologies, mm-hmm. like American military way of seeing, like, you know, the survey photographers and the 19th century landscape painters. I was like, well, what about my own landscape ideology? Maybe I could try to, maybe I have the courage to, to make pictures that express my own, like, how do I see landscape now? Um, right. It's a big step. Crit- it's a I big step of, to try to remove the distance. Yeah just to be more personal mm-hmm. and I'm somebody who's you know I, I first kind of got into hiking and backpacking and stuff when I was maybe around 12 um, I, was, I grew up as a city kid but you know I started I went to summer camp they took us backpacking and then I like I persuaded my babysitter who was kind of outdoorsy to take me to climb Mount Washington I think when I was in 6th grade and I've just I've always been really into that stuff and um but as I've, you know, gotten a little, you know, through adulthood, it 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 
became what it is for I think a lot of people, which is a way to commune with something greater than myself, um, to feel like I'm connected to something that is, you know, beyond, you know, beyond the constrained realities of human civilization and our cities and our built environments. And I always felt that, like, I had these two sides of my life, like, you know, the backpacker, rock climber, backcountry skier, nature lover, <laughs> and the artist who made, like, you know, new media art and started Rhizome and did, you know, reenactments of protest speeches and, you know, but suddenly I was like, wow, you know, maybe, maybe this is how they come together is to start making work about that wilderness experience that has become so important to me. But it's really different for me. It, it had been become really different for me by, say, 2015 than it was in, say, 1993. I remember when I was in grad school at UCSD, you know, I took these amazing trips into the Sierra Mountains, the Sierra Nevada in California, backpacking mm-hmm. and rock climbing and stuff. And climate change just, it didn't really, it wasn't on my radar at that point, even though scientists knew about it. Um, it didn't occur to me that these amazing places were on the brink of really dramatic changes that would be, you know, from the perspective of the, the flora and fauna, the ecosystems, quite catastrophic. Right. Um, and now, of course, we know that we're we're in the we're in the in the in the beginning phase of what's you know thought of as the sixth extinction, a big mass extinction event. So, and that you know we are we're all quite aware of the the risks that climate change causes to to humans, you know, flooding and forest fires and desertification and acidifying oceans and bleaching coral reefs and on and on unsufferably hot weather, crazy storms, tornadoes, hurricanes, um, and typhoons. Um, and we're also, I think, aware that, you know, for example, when there were those tremendous fires in Australia recently, that it was practically genocidal for animals and snakes right. and stuff. And right. Maybe, maybe there weren't snakes, re- reptiles, um, for animals and down there, like millions and millions and millions of animals died. Um, you know, and, um, and also because of climate change, when there are these giant fires, there's fires right now in Big Sur in the central coast of California, they probably will not grow back the same. So for much of the last 10,000 years, when there were big forest fires, the trees would grow back more or less the, as they were before because the climate, climate was fairly stable. It was an unusually stable geological era, you know, in terms of climate. But now, because temperatures are rising, because wind patterns are different, because... Um, there may be less or more precipitation different species of plants and animals will thrive the ecosystems will shift so for example you know the boundary waters this beautiful area along the border of Minnesota and Canada that is going to be no longer a what's called a boreal forest mostly pine trees mm-hmm. and it's going to be a savanna uh, it's going to be different species of trees like oak and stuff like that and grasslands, you know, mm-hmm. in a few hundred years. So when I go, this is a bit long-winded way of saying when I go out into the woods nowadays, and for me it's mostly woods, being a kid who grew up in the Northeast, um, I feel this sense of real appreciation for something that I get to experience and a wistfulness that, you know, my daughters, you know, who are now like in their teens, they get to experience it, but their kids... Maybe not. Their kid, their grandkids, you know, our great, great, great granddaughters will inherit a very different world. Mm-hmm. Cities, of course, will be different, but hopefully, you know, if things work out well, maybe actually in positive ways. Um, but wild places, very, there will still be wild places because we're very good at protecting them now, right? But but you can't protect, uh, you can't protect. Uh, Yosemite from climate change. Right. Well, you seem, on the one hand, uh, you know, wistful about it. On the other hand, you seem kind of positive if our great, 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 great grandchildren will inherit any Earth at all. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Um, <laughs> the Earth will be fine with or without 
Homo sapiens. In mm. geological time, there will be new eras of biological diversity. There, you know, I don't. I'm I'm pretty optimistic actually that that the Homo sapiens will not be extinct in a thousand years or even ten thousand. Um, that's that's just deciding to be optimistic about it because there are right. there's four major categories of existential risk. It's studied actually by these interesting philosophers at Oxford, Toby Ord, and and others, um, uh, Nick Bostrom. But they are climate change, runaway climate change is one of them. Then there's you know nuclear catastrophe, you know a large scale nuclear war, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, some kind of biological weapon, probably mm-hmm. you know genetically engineered disease, you know like COVID nineteen, but both more contagious and more lethal. Um, that is very feasible and then the last one is uh, harder to understand but it's uh, artificial intelligence that doesn't have our interests you know programmed into it Mm -hmm. Um, but anyway um, but anyway I want to know now painting did you have to okay okay but I want to know dodge all those risks I think we might survive and I actually think we might do a pretty good job at some point because we seem to be in the middle of a very dramatic pivot we might do a pretty good job of pulling back from the brink and avoiding the worst disaster so that several hundred years from now, we still have not only humans, but human civilization and people who want to look back and appreciate what was lost and work towards, you know, re-greening the planet. That's what I'm mm-hmm. hoping for. Mm-hmm. And so why paint is the question, I guess. Well, I'm curious, after all of your work with um, new media, performance, video, photography, and so forth, you turned to painting, and did you have to teach yourself how to paint? Or did you had you had painting as an undergraduate, or was it a return to painting? I'm sorry I keep deferring my answers to your question, but can I just... Because the painting came after <laughs> the video recordings. Okay, I have Go to ahead. explain those first. All right. Um, so I'm well, I, I could stay as long as you want. So well, I'll be. I'll keep try on. To be I'm enjoying your, your conversation. I know Go I'm ahead. long-winded, but I'll try to be concise. No, no. So, um, so the the idea initially was to kind of use the format that I first developed for the militia training grounds, placing a camera on a tripod, pressing record, and just recording until the card got full. Right, mm-hmm. so it's a bit of a bit like a structural film, like an Andy Warhol film in a way, right? Like just mm-hmm. you know, you you roll a whole clip, um, but it's also a little bit like say like a, a real time photograph. Um, I mean, to me, it was just a very simple way of capturing something, and I thought, let me just do that for wild places that are protected, you know, from development, but not from climate change, oh. so that. Uh-huh. You know, these great great granddaughters of ours hopefully might be able to go to a museum and see what the Catskills, which I love, you know, were like in 2016, you know, at the dawn of the Anthropocene, mm-hmm. right? When when the world was on the brink. Um, so, and then I was actually in a studio visit, and the curator said, Well, what if you made it 24 hours? Um, and I thought that would be really freaking hard, but okay, you're right, it should be. A whole day, a whole twenty-four hour cycle, which which you know magnifies the challenges exponentially. But from from just from selecting a, a site and framing a shot to the technical challenge of capturing that much data, and you know and staying awake for twenty-four hours to keep the camera operating just right. But um, but so I made my first one in twenty sixteen, the second one in twenty nineteen, in the Cascade Siskiyou National Monument in Oregon, and that's what's on display now at Minus Space. But while I was doing that, so here I get to the painting. So those are meant to be like, you know, when they're shown to contemporary audiences, they're a bit of a, well, they're just, A, they're really pleasurable to look at and really relaxing and kind of contemplative, you know, to see this beautiful, beautiful place just unfolding in real time and you can look at it as long as you want, right? And listen to it. And listen to it, The sound is amazing, yes. The sound is beautiful. And then... um, but um, but then also imagining them as these kind of time capsules, working with museums to get so that they could might be preserved. But of course, as I've learned from Rhizome, which preserves new media art, 
preserving a video is no easy feat. And I'm doing my best and trying to work with good museums to, to, to do that. But um, I thought, you know, I should also really figure out some way to make backups for these videos. And I was taking these recordings. I was taking lots of photographs when I scouted uh, locations for the landscape recordings. But I didn't know what to do with them. I didn't want to just print them out. Um, and then I had the idea, and here's where the painting comes in, to paint them because when I was in college, I had taken this really cool course at Rhode Island School of Design in the illustration department. I went to Brown, but I took a lot of courses at RISD um, on Renaissance painting techniques where, I mean, you know, we learned to do egg tempera, but then we learned to make our own oil paint and to do grayscale underpaintings. We all had to make a grayscale underpainting of drapery. Right, just because you know, it really you could use the chiaroscuro and really show the the, the modeling of the form. And you know, most Renaissance paintings right. uh, had drapery, like draped fabrics on the in the clothing and things. Um, so we, you know, you make this grayscale under painting. It looks like a charcoal drawing, but you know, with paint in in, in from black to white, trying to get the full value spectrum. Um, and then we would effectively colorize them by adding thin layers of color one color at a time you know the, the paint mixed with damar varnish and stand oil which is boiled linseed oil it's thick like honey and it mm -hmm. makes this wonderful syrupy tra very transparent glaze it's a little bit like putting like a colored gel uh, mean, you know like when you do lighting if you, in theater if you want to have a blue light you put like a piece of blue plastic in front of the right. light it's like that, right. like laying colored gels on top of your painting, but, you know, with tremendous control. And then you build up the color layer upon layer. So I, I thought, what if I did that with my photographs? And instead of, you know, projecting and, and painting the underpainting, which is what most people do these days, or gridding it out, I'm just going to print it. So it's sort of betwixt in between a painting and a photograph. It's kind of both at the same time. So I, I take photographs print them onto canvas or or dye bond and then very grayscale teeny, teeny tiny brushes yeah and grayscale with teeny tiny brushes over the course of a year or two paint them colorize mm -hmm. them until you know the, the print is more or less vanished underneath and what you see is this kind of like I you know they're very you know re naturalistic um, but they, they they do baffle people because they at first glance look like photographs and then when you look really close you see okay they are paintings and they give you that kind of wow how did they do that or how did he do that kind of feeling right and you, I think you're, I hope you've sort of you're onto something here because you know photographs are always going to fade and so oil paintings well although they will you know darken and deepen they, they probably have the best chance of surviving yeah I'm actually taking it one step further I'm using acrylic golden acrylic because um, they're really bombproof, and um, and putting like five coats of UV varnish on top, so the varnish can be removed and replaced along, you know, in, in, in the distant future. But the pigments should be really stable, and mm -hmm. the, and shouldn't yellow, because like Damar varnish, it turns out does yellow over time. Um, and then, so, so what's it like for you? You're used to working quite oh, I love quite it. a bit faster than it was very personal than too. Like I wanted to slow it down. You know, I, I was tired a little bit of project-based work where you're in the you know, pre-production for a long time, raising money and logistics and research, and then production really intense, like a month, and post-production stretches out, and you're sitting on computers all the time doing editing and sound mixing and stuff. And then, you know, and I also love making the exhibitions, working with the curator or the gallery to put it to put it up. But I wanted something I could do in my studio, just like day in day out, just make. Um, and I wanted the challenge of relearning how to paint like that. Right. It took a while. So the first painting that I have in the show is dated, or the first painting that I've made that I have on my website is dated, I think, 2017 or so. But, you know, they're slow. They take a long, long time. Right. And then I had the idea to put these cool, to make a new kind of frame for them because I felt like the, they, they really needed a frame that, that, both drew attention to the fact that they're paintings, um, but also 
you know, connected both to the way that, you know, say 19th century landscape paintings were framed in these ornate, usually gilt frames, and the fact that they are really 21st century pictures. So they're, um, I take 3D models of antique frames and then have them milled, digitally milled in, in wood so that they're these kind of weird, uh, they're kind of, I think, I, I think they're a little uncanny, kind of like the, um, the paintings and the, the, the UV landscape, you know, aerial photographs. I agree. I, the, the thing about the frames is they look like, you know, have you ever seen those chainsaw sculptures? Yes. They just yeah. remind me of some crafter, you know, who, who some woodsman who is whittling or, you know, the, the sailors on Moby Dick or some, or not on Moby Dick, but on the, um, ship. Pequod? The Pequod, yes. And, um, I mean, they, of course, look, they look like the old frames because they're 3D prints, but it's just the, the surfaces look like wood. And so, I don't know, it's this very interesting mashup yeah. of ideas, well, really even just for the frames. Yeah, I mean, I worked with a wonderful fabricator who is himself an artist, and you know, we talked a lot about what we wanted them to look like, and whether I should 3D print them or or digitally mill them. Um, digital milling is sort of like uh, like robotic carving, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. And and then like how how perfect should they be? Um, and you know, I, we could have taken it further and used smaller and smaller bits on the milling machine to make them more and more refined and show less of no. the bit marks. They're perfect. But we wanted them to show a little bit how they were made. So that as you walk up, you'd be like, oh, it's not a regular frame. It's this weird, it looks totally digital, but it's not, yeah. but it is. And then, yeah. then you're like, oh, but it's not a photograph, it's a painting. Right. I love that. I love that. You know, I, I mean, I love it when art has a little sense of magic or like, how the hell? I love right. that. You know, right. to me, that's part of paying respect also to the place um, that I'm trying to record. You know, it's, I want to make something really beautiful and special. Right. Now, now also, you know, you've sort of turned your attention to the, back to the upstate community a little bit, right? Well, yeah. Um, I've been spending more and more time up there. And and so what are your thoughts about, um, you know, I know it's related to sort of the evolving climate change and so forth, what what are you what how are you preparing? Are you preparing? Are you thinking you need to prepare? What's your what's your um, uh, you know, you're the you're the visionary and futurist. I wanna know what you anticipate. Right. Um, what are you anticipating? So yeah, I, I, I wasn't really ready to talk about it, but um That's okay. We don't have to talk about that. We'll move well, on to something else. We're looking for a piece of, we we found a piece of land up in the Catskills in an agricultural community. And we're trying to buy it and put a, a passive house on it where we can live with our kids. Um, splitting time between there and New York for a while. You know, lots of people during the pandemic, of course, you know, started doing that. Um, I thought if we're going to do that um, and we can swing it, um, we shouldn't, we should do it in a way that's really supporting sustainability. Mm-hmm. So, um, some learning about permaculture, which is a kind of um, agroecology where you try to um, restore land through, you know, using land to to, to help produce some some food. Um, just things like you know, even just things like having herbs and berries and fruit trees, um, and maybe some animals that you know help restore soil quality that's been depleted over the the, the centuries. Um, by you know by till till based agriculture or monocultures like hayfields and um, and just you know have a have a place to, to go that you know doesn't require any fossil fuels to heat and cool mm-hmm. and that um, where I can I've, I have never lived year round you know out of a city in my life except for one year off from college when I was living in Colorado but other than that it's always been squeezed in between school and work mm-hmm. and you know I'm 55 and I imagine a period of transitioning 
shuttling back and forth between upstate and downstate, and then maybe eventually, you know, living in the country year-round and learning how to support, you know, food security by, like, having edible things grow on the land that I live in and supporting community, too. Like, it's tricky there because in much of rural America, there's wide political... There's a lot of political differences between the ex-urban folks and mm-hmm. the people who have lived there year-round for generations who tend to be, you know, probably voted for Trump, etc. But, um, you know, I learned this when I was doing the militia training ground recordings. At a certain point, you know, it's. A, I think it's really important to respect people who are different from us. And um, I want to be in community with my my art artistic and political peers, you know, here in the in the big city who, you know, we think like we think alike and talk alike. But I wanna be able to be in community with people who see the world really differently too. I think that makes for for a stronger country, hopefully. And mm-hmm. you can't do that. I think it's almost impossible to do that on a large scale. But maybe you can do it on a really small scale, like one friend at a time, one neighbor at a time. Right. Right. You know, I, I'm I also want to ask you, I know we're running out of time here, but I want to ask you, and if anybody has any questions or comments, please raise your hand. Um, what about NFTs, Mark? <laughs> I'm asking you because you have such a rich history with, you know, net art and online things, and and now there's this whole huge thing, which, I don't know, what do you think? It's certainly the first not- thing that comes to mind when when I when I think of the the, the acronym NFT. Yeah, which you guys know it stands for non fungible token, which is totally not illuminating. Um, is FOMO <laughs> fear of missing out? Right. I feel right. like everybody is right. either you know minting NFTs or buying NFTs or has fear of missing out on them. Um, I don't think I really have either. Um, I think that. Um, I think that um, decentralized finance, which of which cryptocurrency is the prime example, um, and blockchain technologies, and again, cryptocurrencies are the the, the most widely adopted example. Are, those are the really important technologies. Um, I think, yeah, I think blockchain technology and crypto and crypto are really important um, to. They're going to have an impact on our future, perhaps as great as the internet. Um, and I think one thing that gives me hope, this is not really about NFTs in particular, is that, so the internet, there was this dream, right, that it would flatten hierarchies and create, you know, global communities, but it kind of got captured by a few big companies, by Google and uh, what company is now called Meta, mm-hmm. uh, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg's company, and, and, and a few others, Amazon. Um, and you kind of, in order to like, um, in order to really connect with a lot of people, you, you, you know, there's a lot of incentives to use those platforms and be sort of locked into this privatized, highly surveilled, monetized, system that, and here's what's problematic about it really, is not that it's capitalistic but that um, in order to participate, you have to subject yourself to manipulation Mm -hmm. by really sophisticated artificial intelligence slash machine learning systems. So they are hacking people's minds when you use Facebook, Instagram, even even Google, your brain is being hacked. Mm -hmm. And that's really troubling. Crypto I sorry, not crypto, but blockchain technology offers a solution to make the internet really distributed again, really decentralized again, um, and therefore to create spaces that are perhaps less subject to that kind of manipulation, which I think is scary. It's really scary having um, really sophisticated machine learning systems. TikTok, for example, this Chinese company, the, mm-hmm. the, the platform that we all know of, which we think of as you know people sharing these little videos, um, mostly teenagers, 
everyone talks about how sort of oh toxic it is, but what's really scary is it's basically the front end for um, a machine learning artificial intelligence company that's using it to gather data on people and how they how they think and to manipulate them. So it's that's that to me is really you know one of these four horsemen of the apocalypse um, non-aligned artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. That's the one of the you know the the, the solution. It's called the alignment problem, and it's a it's a deep it's like a it's a very hard uh, computer science problem trying to figure out how to make sure that artificial intelligence are aligned with human interests. But I do think that crypto techno- or um, blockchain technology can give some leverage to people who want to be protected from it. Um, so, but in terms of the art and NFTs, that was a big like you know monologue about things you didn't ask about. NFTs are simply a way of, um, to me, of buying and selling art um, that is potentially potentially empowering for artists, but it's really too early to, to say whether that will work because they they you know they they have smart contracts built in that allow artists to retain resale rights, i.e. royalties. So that's kind of cool. Um, it's it's gotten a lot of people excited who don't normally buy art. In buying, you know, collectibles and, and things that resemble art, and um, and perhaps also art, um, that's kind of potentially exciting. It's moving really fast. Um, it's not. You're not going to be making any. You're not going to be making any NFTs. I'm not saying that. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it, it's thing is, it's, it's I, I sound like I know what I'm talking about. It's really mm-hmm. complicated and difficult stuff, and it's moving really fast. And I do know that in order to, to like to do anything like that well and intelligently, you have to really immerse yourself in it. And I mm-hmm. think I'd rather immerse myself in the woods, right? Then, right. then, you know, spend a lot of time figuring out like, you know, the different different cryptocurrencies and the different NFT minting platforms, and you know how to build a community of people who are into that stuff around you know, my name and my brand. And I just, you know, that's not really where I'm at right now. Right. right. So yeah, I don't, you know, if like Jed Scott had an interesting uh, project recently where he minted an NFT and um, it was uh, a white man and, and sold this NFT mm-hmm. uh, kind of as a conceptual political artwork mm-hmm. um, in connection with his recent show at Kristen Tierney Gallery. That made sense because the word fungible, he noticed the word fungible was in like the, you know, a lot of the, I guess the commercial contract language when, when human beings were enslaved, people were sold, right. um, you know, back in the, in the 18th century and 19, early 19th century. Um, so human beings uh, in, in the American regime of slavery were, were considered fungible. So I thought, let's make a fungible token of a human being, a white man and see, you know, try to sell that as a kind of commentary. That was a very good reason to do an NFT. I don't have one right now. Right, right. Uh, so chasing the market is not enough is what you're telling telling me. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. I think if somebody came to me and said, hey, you know, I'd love to work with you to, to mint an NFT, development offerings. Right. Well, Mark, I really uh, enjoy our conversation today. I loved hearing how you moved from being visionary forward thinking and now back to the land a painter so I think it kind of affirms painters decisions everywhere well I will say you know that um, I'm really enjoying painting more and more and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how my painting practice evolves and um, that's a really cool thing too. Uh, is you know just like as you know, in, in, when I was doing other kinds of work, you get to sort of leap from one stone to the next as you cross the the river, right? Yeah. Um, yep. And you don't quite know where where you're going to land next. And no. that's um, but painting is you know there is painting has some wonderful qualities that I think have a lot to do with why it endures and it's not just that it's it's not just a special place you know in the market and in, within institutions but um, but painted pictures 
are pretty wonderful. And, and the process, the pro- you can't ignore the process. To for artists, the, for us, right? Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Wonderful the act of painting, yep. I've always loved smearing colored paste on the surface. <laughs> That's a really, it's a, there is something very sensually pleasurable. And then yeah. also, you know, um, it's not intellectual, it's, but it's aesthetic, right? It really, mm-hmm. for my, I, I find that it really draws me in, in a way that often, you know, working on a computer screen doesn't. Yeah, it gives you time to uh, meander, to let your thoughts meander. I always found working on the computer is much more you need to know where you're going. Mm-hmm. All right, Mark. Well, thanks. Well, thank you Sharon, so much. I enjoy our conversations a lot and yes. uh, look forward to the next one that we have here in the neighborhood. Yes. Yes. All right, Mark. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. And uh, see you next week at 1130 on Monday. Have a good week, everyone. <laughs>